today on Ag News Daily. USDA is a very large consumer of this information. Administer programs issued by the Farm Service Agency, uh, the Risk Management Agency. Some of their uh, uh, products are, are used. They use NAS data, the Census of Ag data for that. Thursday, April 27th, 2023. Here to bring you the latest headlines, Tanner and Delaney to chat. And a cool conversation, I think, headed our way after we get through the news. Right, Delaney? That's right, Tanner. We're going to be talking USDA census data. A big topic, but maybe a interesting topic for farmer discussions. Yeah, let's see if we can uh, keep that from being a snooze fest and really bring some value to our listeners. Uh, we know, like you said, a lot of different opinions when data is polled in the ag sector. And uh, it's neat to kind of see where some of our legislatures stand on this. Absolutely, Tanner. But I tell you what, I know you usually like to hit the news or excuse me, hit the weather here at the top of the news section here. And I've got a couple of news weather related headlines here. First being the Southern Plains finally received some of the best rain standard that they've received in quite some time. Uh, Weather forecasts are suggesting they got the best rains in the Southwestern Plains since July with more in the forecast. However, a lot of folks are suggesting that it's coming a little too late as we continue to watch crop condition reports for winter wheat country uh, continuing to get worse in a lot of those portions, but the rainfall is encouraging for spring planting crops. Uh, and like I said, more rainfall for that region lies ahead. So that's certainly some exciting news there, but is it going to help? That's the major question. Yeah. That, and I would say the only thing I've got to add is just how cold it is still in the Northern portion of the U S mm-hmm. so Michigan, Indiana, Ohio are still in freeze warnings. Uh, we're looking to see temperatures falling below 32 degrees. Obviously, possible frost advisories in Illinois and Ohio, and then wind in the Dakotas. So still cold, uh, but they're dealing with quite a bit of that breeze. Always like to hit ethanol output on Thursdays as well. We dropped week-to-week inventories to the lowest level in three months. So we're seeing some demand pick up there. The production of ethanol averaged 967 barrels per day this week through April 21st. That's down from just over a million barrels a day in the previous week's records. As stated, inventories dropped to 24.306 million barrels through the ending of week April 21st. That's down from 25.293. So that was actually a near over a million barrel swing. So we'll continue to watch that. But that was the lowest level since January 13th. We also are continuing to see the adverse effect happen on the Mississippi River where we're seeing some of the highest levels when it comes to our water. The Mississippi River is officially closed from St. Paul, Minnesota through Quincy, Illinois, as far as dams go. And no barge traffic is estimated to get through the area here for at least the first part of May. Many will remain closed the second part of May when you look at locks and dam systems uh, south of Quincy, Illinois. And the impact here really is revolved around, of course, transportation of grain getting out of those areas, but more so fertilizer and other products coming up into those areas. But significant snowfall and rain over the past couple of weeks have really increased water levels by sizable amounts. Uh, The 
grain transport report, transportation report, which I, I didn't realize was a resource that the USDA put out, but is an interesting one nonetheless here, Tanner, estimates that water levels in the St. Paul, Minnesota River are reaching flood stages at 14 feet. And as of April 25th, they were anticipating the river to get up to 18 feet, which is where it will crest. According to the uh, American Commercial Barge Line, the high water event is what closed those port systems, Lock 3 through Lock 17. And as I mentioned there, that high water is expected to last about 12 to 15 days and then start to flow downriver to areas south of Quincy, that will be likely closing those ports. As we look at fertilizer transportation, specifically via barge system, Tanner, the USDA has estimated so far that about two and a half million tons of fertilizer have been delivered during the first 12 weeks of 2023. But certainly with a question mark still on acreage, they're suggesting that you know, there's a big question mark about how much fertilizer still has yet to go further north, because as you look at grain flow, it's obviously go, obviously flowing north to south to get out at our ports. But fertilizer has the opposite where it's trying to get out of the New Orleans area where a lot of it's produced and go north to a lot of the farm country areas. So just a piece of news here to continue watching. But uh, they said this was going to be the most uh, wet year could be floods as worse as 2001. That's what they're dating back to here. Yeah, that's uh, not a lot of great news. I mean, obviously we'd like to welcome the moisture, but uh, ultimately we want to keep the flooding to a minimum. Back in March, the USDA proposed label restrictions to meat, poultry, eggs and that are all born and raised, slaughtered and processed in the United States. Currently the foreign meat that is processed at U.S. plants is labeled as a product of the USA. And now Canada's deputy ambassador is convinced that this is not a great practice. So now as you look here, uh, Arun Alexander was in Washington yesterday and was expressing Canada's concern about the real world consequences about labeling product of the USA on products voluntarily that are produced here. So it mainly focused on his uh, emphasis on the beef industry. If cattle are processed at United States plants that had come across the border as live animals, is that product Delaney a product of Canada or a product of the USA? It is also one of those to where, according to Alexander, stated that they are willing to participate in the USDA's consultation processes to make sure that their products are certified to meet the US standards. He is also looking to continue to address the uh, officials in Washington during this public comment period that runs through June 11th. The suggestion there was is to find a mutually agreed upon such as packaged in the USA product of Canada or to uh, look at other variable suggestions put together. So it says here the most effect this could have on is small and medium-sized processors that might not be able to separate products you know if a pen of cattle comes in from canada and the next load comes in from the us uh, which may cause issues to where only canadian cattle are slaughtered on a certain day uh, this chain reaction delaney kind of looks to be extensive but certainly canada wants to remain uh, tied to the product in which us consumers are eating 
We'll take our quick update here on a couple of headlines we've been following on the podcast. The first of which is the strike I reported on dealing with Argentine transportation workers or transport workers. They've ended the strike here just very shortly after it started, after working through discussions with the government. The Rosario Grain ports were specifically what the strike was dealing with, and the country signed a memorandum of understanding with the union with the commitment to lift any measure of force in place within the framework of a table for dialogue and social peace. But it sounds like the folks here were protesting and asking for an increase in the tariffs on the transportation of merchandise and for a seat at the table when these meetings happen and when the rates are decided. And so that memorandum of understanding here states the government will allow the union to have a place at the table and help establish some of the tariff schemes that happen. Other quick headline that I had here to report on was, as we reported earlier, I think last week on the podcast, Colorado is the first state to push forth legislation on an agricultural right to repair bill law, and it has now been signed into law officially as Colorado's governor signed the nation's first right to repair legislation into law on Tuesday night, Tanner. Yeah, I had seen that as well. So we'll see if other states follow. We know that uh, there was other discussions throughout the U.S. around the same topic. want to hit a little bit of Russia-Ukraine news. Uh, it is in Kiev right now where they're still reacting to the phone call between the Chinese leader Xi and Ukrainians. Zelensky states here that according to um, the Secretary General for Ukraine, that this was a positive call and may actually lead to some uh, ceasefire talks, maybe even a peaceful resolution to the battle right now. The other big thing that we're seeing right now is the Crimea base is now empty. According to satellite imagery, the Russian forces have emptied out that key base that they have holding a position in northern Crimea. Of course, this comes as there was a potential expected counteroffensive that was going to be launched from Ukraine this spring that we'd reported on earlier this week. But now as you look, both satellite imagery from independent sources as well as NATO has stated here that it looks like combat vehicles and a significant amount of Russian armor has been vacated from that area, which may make this offensive less exciting as far as a, a project for Ukrainian offenses. Also looking here, NATO has delivered to uh, Ukrainian allies more combat vehicles. Uh, there is more than 98% now of NATO represented in combat vehicles promised and delivered to Ukraine. So it's quite an interesting development here in the last 24 hours with uh, the Chinese getting involved in possibly diplomatic role, which I don't think many had expected. And then also seeing Russia pull back out of a key counteroffensive position or an offensive position for them in preparations for maybe a counteroffense. So a couple updates coming out of Ukraine.
Tanner, I also have an update here coming out of Brazil as they're continuing now to do try and find other countries to do business with. And we know they've been continuing to strengthen their relationship with Brazil. And that was solidified as we saw weekly export numbers reflected last week an aggressive purchase of Brazilian soybeans for import by China. Typically during this time of year when Brazil's soybean harvest is coming online and farmers are continuing to sell their crop. We've seen lower basis prices and just lower markets in general, as we've seen that massive crop come online, but it's normal to expect weekly purchases around 20 to 30 cargos per week. Last week, we saw China commit to 45 cargos. And that is a huge move here for China. A lot of questions about, you know, the crush margins uh, going on in China, but it sounds like this shipment 45 cargos here will start loading in the may june july time frame arrive at chinese ports about 45 days later and they got the soybeans at quite a discount it sounds like tanner uh they were booked at 60 cents under chicago july futures for june shipment so this is certainly a large purchase um A lot of sources are suggesting that China has booked about 10 million metric tons of soybeans for April shipments. That's up 16% year over year. So a lot of speculation about what China is doing with all these soybeans, whether or not they're stockpiling to try and avoid U.S. purchases in the future, or if there's something else going on behind the scenes that they're not really alluding to here. But nonetheless, they are making some aggressive purchases. Yeah, that's interesting. You'd like to try and connect the two, the the meeting that they had in Ukraine, as well as these movements. But that doesn't add up when you look at the macro side of things. I've got just two quick headlines before I'm out for today, Delaney. Siouxland Energy Cooperative has been required for the last 20 years to filter dust and air emitted by their corn bin, their reserve storage of corn. And the Iowa Department of Natural Resources fined them $10,000 for non-compliance this last week. This is not the first time that Siouxland Energy has been in conflicts with the DNR. There were occasions in 2001, 2, 3, seven and 17 all related to different hazardous conditions so far their total penalties prior to this fine was thirty thousand dollars so this ratchets them up to 40. there's also a ranch located in hyannis nebraska h-y-a-n-n-i-s that sits on one of the deepest parts of the Ogallala aquifer produces around 1,800 tons of hay and on irrigated meadows has a set 900 head cow-calf herd. The Nebraska Examiner reported that this ranch has sold to a Colorado family and the deal will be finalized this summer. It was originally listed, Delaney, at $16.7 million, but it was only on the market for less than a month. It's nearly 52,000 acres and in 1937, it was split to where it is called the pitchfork three circles and dumbbell and holland hall is the company that will facilitate this ranch but you don't see acres of this magnitude exchange hands very often no you certainly don't that's what i've got for today what do you got left i think i am all out of news 
here. Tanner, other than a quick announcement here, John Deere has entered into an agreement with PCT Ag Cloud, providing a new precision software for John Deere customers. Uh, this platform allows small grains, corn, soybeans, and other growers using Harvest Lab 3000 grain sensing to generate actionable insights through PCT Ag Cloud's Protein Pro software, which helps enable automated cleaning, editing, multiple machine corrections, intersecting zone sections, and zone creation and nitrogen removal, as well as product placement data in John Deere's operations center. So just a quick headline there before we hit market standard, if that's good with you. Yeah, go right ahead. What do they look like? Well, as we clock into opening session here, certainly seeing red across the screen, especially as we saw, you know, rains reported in a good swath of the country yesterday. That's uh, definitely put a little damper on the markets here this morning. Heading into the opening session, May corn down three and a half cents at 638. New crop corn down five and three quarters cents to clock in at 537 and three quarters. May soybeans down six cents on the May contract at 1430. November beans will open at 1260 and a half down six and a quarter cent. May hard red winter wheat down nine and three quarters cents to open at eight, excuse me, seven eighty-three and three quarters. And as we take a look at livestock to get a refresher of where they closed yesterday, June live cattle added 55 cents to close at a buck 64.57. May feeder cattle added 85 cents to open today at 210 27 and a half and June lean hogs will open $3.22 and a half cents higher at 90 27 and a half. Tanner, today's episode is a little unique. We've got a few great comments here for our listeners referring to and looking at the USDA census that's currently underway. We're going to be hearing here from Hubert Hammer, the administrator at NAS, as well as Congressman Tracy Mann from Kansas. Kicking it over here first, Tanner, we're going to hear from Hubert, and he's going to talk about the success of census submissions so far and whether most folks are sending those in via online or mail. a strong push to get more information collected online. In fact, I think we've doubled the 2017 uh, rate that we're completing online. It's a lot quicker. It's more efficient. Uh, and it helps us to get the data in a lot quicker. But we realize there's some broadband issues in some parts of the country. And paper is very acceptable. Uh, we will do some phone follow-up with some of the larger operations if we have not received those. But we really prefer the Internet version. We We've made it a lot more easy to, to follow. And then you don't have to go through all of the sections. It's uh, You can click through and, and put the data in that you have for your operation. So Delaney, have you and your husband completed your survey? And if so, are you going to send it in via mail or are you going to respond online? You know, I personally would tend to respond online. And I think that draws the big question because a lot of farmers want to know, is this census safe to fill out. I think there's a big misconception that this data is going to be sold or that it's publicly available. And so that leads us into our next discussion point here is the trust and safety in submitting census information. Is it protected? One of the things we want to stress is that any piece of information that farmers and ranchers provide to us, it is protected by law. 
It cannot be shared with any other organization. It can't be shared within the Department of Agriculture. So the data that they're providing us is protected, it's safe, and it's designed to help uh, their local communities, uh, their regions, and the state. Uh, obviously, the Farm Bill uh, discussion is coming up. You always want to have the most up-to-date, uh, accurate information for those types of decisions. I appreciate those comments because I even wonder beyond the filters that we have in our own computer systems, whether it's a junk mail or uh, a virus protection, but then the data once it's submitted uh, is obviously key. That's a big focus in agriculture. So I'm glad that that he took a, po- a moment there to make sure that uh, we got a clear answer on that. But as our listeners have told us before, and of course, the speculations we've had in our own conversation is, is this a positive practice? Is this something that's going to help farmers out? You know, we reported on having uh, a large number of really small farms, and that's how maybe Congress will make decisions in the next farm bill. So let's get comments here as to how positively this data can impact our listeners. USDA is a very large consumer of this information to administer programs issued by the Farm Service Agency, uh, the Risk Management Agency. Some of their uh, uh, products are, are used. They use NAS data, the Census of Ag data for that. And then uh, grain companies, elevators uh, to uh, locate uh, facilities, uh, rail spurs. There are a lot of different uses of this information that directly impact the farmers and their local communities. And Tanner, I think this next question was actually mine because I'm curious, you know, how is the data that's collected actually used? Is it going to be used for a farm bill? Are we going to have that happen in time? But if not, how does the USDA actually use this data? When you think about uh, having data at the uniform local data at the local level, uh, it helps with decision making, not at the just the national level. Uh, if you look at some of the weather patterns we're having, you have disasters almost every other week. Uh, for farmers to be made whole, you need information to help, uh, you know, identify what are the commodities in those areas, what are the prices of those commodities. Uh, so we want to make sure that, uh, you know, again, when you start looking at, uh, the farm, the farm service agency programs, uh, they use a lot of information from the census of agriculture, risk management tools that the producers use. They're very, very popular. You need sound information to base those programs on. And, of course, other farm policy, uh, not not only the farm bill, but there are other uh, uh, policy decisions that are made that affect uh, the local communities, the states, and, and regions. So uh, this information is critical for that. Yeah, that was a good question. And then this is interesting, too, to get these next comments around, will the data be there in time? There's already discussions about the next farm bill. Uh, a lot of it's already taking shape. But will we be using old, maybe inadequate data for the decisions coming forward? Well, obviously, timely information is very, very important. Uh, but 
uh, our cycle is published uh, years that end in two and seven. Uh, this this program has been in place since 1840. Uh, so you have a long history uh, to just kind of look at the structure over time, how much land is involved, how many farmers, how many farms. So you have a rich history of information over time. Uh, I don't expect to see a monumental shift in acres and the number of producers, but you see trends uh, over time. And uh, again, up-to-date information is always better. And Tanner, I have to admit, uh, Tracy Mann here, the next congressman that's going to speak. I had really honestly never heard him speak before, and I just really appreciated some of the comments he had to share. I know we'll be sharing a few of his other comments here coming up in additional episodes, just of some pieces of legislation he's really focused on for his constituents in rural Kansas. But he also shared some great comments on, again, not really being able to use this census data in time for the next farm bill. The overall national population is one thing, and then specific statistics are another thing. I think we got to um, zoom out here and realize, you know, we do farm years, farm bills every five years for a reason, and that is so that the bill you want it long enough to provide some certainty, but short enough that it can respond and react to uh, changing market conditions and dynamics for our ag producers. And so I think sometimes we forget or lose sight of the fact that why farm bills are every five years, not every year. Also, not every, you know, not, not set an absolute permanency so that they can adjust. Um, you know, right now we're in a situation where we have high commodity prices in this farm bill. We also have record high input costs as well. And so this farm bill, you know, needs to reflect the, the, the times in that. So I think those important things. That some other- So Delaney, that was kind of a fun way to go about extending the comments uh, Congress people have made to our listeners, uh, as well as the administrator for NAS. It'll be kind of neat to see if we can make this format happen more in the future, but ultimately a good perspective for maybe a, a survey that a lot of our listeners are skeptical of, and hopefully we provided some more value to them today. Yeah, Tanner, do you think we have a future as being political commentary folks? Uh, If there is, I don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be a tough job for sure. But it's an easy job here to be on the Ag News Daily Podcast. We appreciate our listeners for tuning in with us once again today. Tanner, with that, what do you say? We let them go. Let's let them go. (laughs) 